You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. not really one for introductions, so hi, my name is Brandon. I have a poem for you all. There we go. Nah, I'm good off that. Uh, The Old Testament speaks of the day Jesus would come. It speaks of a time in which nations would crumble, when the skies would roar and turn ablaze at his sight, when the earth herself would tremble knowing that God in flesh had come down to grace her once again. And the people of Israel fell to their knees praying for this day when their warrior king would come to vanquish their oppressors, to restore Israel to their rightful place. And when that day came, the skies did not crackle, nor did they split to the outpour of heaven's fury. Instead, it was a night where a cloudy haze with but one star in the sky shone, guiding a few souls to deliver devotion to the newborn king. The earth did not rumble, nor did it succumb to rubble. Instead, she remained silent, eerily still, as the streets of Bethlehem riddled with the desolation a a cool winter's eve brings in its wake while a woman carrying the light of the world was denied asylum by the very people who prayed for the gifts she was carrying. But that's how the Son of Man came to earth. Not only in the humility of flesh, but in the humility of a manger when the whole world should have fallen to their knees in praise of his arrival, but instead he was forced to be a refugee fleeing from a fear-mongered ruler who would have thought that a little brown-skinned boy being birthed in a trough made for swine to dine would be the answer to the greatest enemy of humanity. And that brings us to the church today. No longer ignorant to the ways of Christ, we humble ourselves to your grandeur, God, knowing that the return of the Messiah is soon coming. And this time, we wait in undying anticipation with hearts prepared to give all unto you and hands ready to receive all of you, that this time our streets not be riddled by the desolation of a cold, apathetic heart. But instead, we allow our homes and these bodies to be a safe haven for the return of our King. For as we fall on our knees, knowing that the Lord has returned, knowing all that we have once again been made whole, we pray that when you return, O Lord, that the skies would be torn open and set ablaze with the holy fire overflowing from our hearts, that the earth would tremble under the voice of praise humanity is raised in your name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Christ is our Lord and Savior for now and forevermore. Now, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah and stand if you are able for the reading and proclaiming of God's word. Our reading is, our reading this morning is taken from Isaiah 64. Perfect. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence, 
And when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil that make your name known to our adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him who meet, who meet him, who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have, been, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like, pol- are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, And remember, not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brandon. We appreciate you. The theme of Advent this year is joy to the world. And that is based on a hymn that you will hear pretty much anywhere and everywhere that you go this season, whether it's shopping at Target or to the coffee shop or as you're hanging the decorations on the tree, Joy to the World. And it's a famous hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. You ever heard that before? Yeah. So this is going to serve as our outline for this season. We're going to walk through this verse line by line uh, throughout this Advent season. And today we begin by looking at that first statement, the Lord is come. The Lord is come. I find this really fitting for the first week of Advent, the Lord is come. And that, that statement's always puzzled me because it's, it's grammatically puzzling, <laughs> right? Does that mean he has come or does that mean he's going to come? Yeah. No, but I mean, like, has, has the Lord come, or does that mean he's going? Yes. Well, which one is it? Both. Advent is the season that reorients our hearts and our minds as to where we are in this unfolding drama of God's deliverance of humanity. The Lord has come in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Christ came. He lived. He died. He rose. He ascended. And yet the Lord is coming again to bring to completion what he began, to right every wrong, to judge the living and the dead, to raise us to everlasting life. The Apostle Paul would write to the church, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Where are we in this story? Well, as one author put it, we are living between the hallelujah of Christ's resurrection and the maranatha of Christ's return. Between the praise God for his 
first coming, and the Lord, please come quickly of a second. The Lord has come. The Lord is coming again. And there we are in the tension. There we find ourselves. But like the pattern demonstrated in Isaiah 64 for us, the first week of Advent begins actually by looking forward in expectation and longing. And then as we move throughout the, the Advent season, then we look back. Now the temptation for us as believers that study a scripture that was penned in the past, for those of us with that, that Bible in our laps, that ancient word, the temptation for us is to simply view God in the past. That God did this and he did that and there he is standing next to his work sometime back then. And the challenge of faith and it's a challenge. The challenge of faith is to see the God who did such great things in the past is actually with us in the present. The challenge is to, to recognize that, as verse 5 tells us, that he meets those who, who gladly do right. To recognize, as Isaiah points out, that the potter's hands are upon us, that God is forming us in the everyday moments, the mundane moments of our lives, even when it seems like he's absent. Oftentimes, the faith that, is, that we're called to, that faith is challenged by what we look around and we perceive around us. Faith is challenged in the real world. And like Isaiah's prayer acknowledges and really gives us room to kind of just be within We've heard and we've read of God and we've read of his unrivaled acts, that he shook the mountain, that he parted the sea, that he led his people, that he provided manna in the wilderness and on and on and on. And yet we look around and we see darkness and we see brokenness and we see evil. And if we were to be honest, it appears as if God has hidden his face in our generation as well. If we were to be honest, it's as if God is absent. Living in the real life feels like God has given up. And yet faith is called upon to acknowledge that he is, in fact, here. Emmanuel, God is with us. The challenge of faith. But not only that, hope is summoned as well. This is, this is a key theme in our Advent season, hope. See, hope stretches us even beyond that to see that the God of history, the God who has done such great things, the God even of the here and the now, that eternal God rules and reigns in the future. He rules and reigns in your future. That God speaks to us from that future. A future of life, a future of freedom, a future of justice, a future of, of peace, a future where there is no sin and no pain, no strife, no tears, no shame, no death. And God calls us to lift our eyes beyond the horizon of what we see in our life right now, to peer into that future that he has promised for every single one of his saints, and to see him there, and to see ourselves there too. I remember as a young boy, um, on the Saturday of daylight savings, my dad would go throughout the entire house and change all of the clocks. No clock left unchanged. The car, the outdoor clock, our bedrooms, my watch, everyone's clock, for you young people, clocks didn't change themselves at one point in history. 
And so he would, he would go through the whole house with a fine-tooth comb, finding every single clock, sync them up to the soon-to-be time. My friends' families, they would get around to it Sunday, or maybe even Monday morning. And then they would often have that microwave that stays about an hour off for weeks or months, or maybe even until the next daylight saving cycle. Or that car that's, that's left uh, unchanged. But my dad, it was very different. He would dial all these clocks in sometime in the afternoon, maybe even before the sun went down, or at the latest that evening on Saturday night before we all went to bed. And we would all go to bed on the soon-to-be time. And I, as a kid, especially when I was losing an hour, when I knew it was still early, that felt like such injustice. This was something, I, I know what time it is. I know what time it is. And I would look at the clock and I would say, yeah, I know that's what it's supposed to be. I know what time it is right now. But today I get it. This Advent season, I totally get it. Because what was coming meant something for the now. That there was something coming that would make right what appeared wrong. And, and for my dad, the future shaped the present. And that is really at the heart of the Advent season. Why are we gathered here? We are gathered here to change the internal clocks of our hearts forward to the time of heaven, to, to a future that I know it seems so far off and so distant, but it is a future that shapes our today. It is a future that shapes every dimension of our life. See, generally, we say that our past determines our present, the decisions that we made, the upbringing that we had, the, the schooling that we went to and participated in, the, the people that were around us, that the upbringing, our past is really what defines us. And while this is true in a sense, for the Christian, we also believe that something greater is at work. And it's that the future, our future with God, actually shapes our present. And not only shapes it, not only like tinkers with it, but actually totally determines it. Advent is the good news season that for the one who hopes in Jesus Christ, it is not your past sin that defines you. And it is not your present brokenness in your life or in the world around you that ultimately defines you. It is the future reality with God that has the last word. It is that future reality with God that has the last word in your life and in the world around you. For the Christian, and here's the challenge for you. If you look into your future, however you do that, whether it's with a planner, a calendar, with some sort of goals list, with some sort of dreaming, and whether you wish upon a star, I don't know, whatever you do, if you look into the future and you see anything less than being seated with Christ in the heavenly places and experiencing full and absolute joy and freedom, your vision is skewed. And your hope needs reviving. And good news, that's what Advent's for. That's why we're here. Our hope needs reviving, amen? You look around the world right now, and it is definitely set to Christmas time. We are deep <laughs> in Christmas time. The lights, the music, the family, the gifts, all the things. And uh, they're, they're all fine things in and of themselves. But what we need to recognize is Advent is calling us to something different. Let's not let these blend and mix and, 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 uh, and get caught up in, in one another. There's, there's something distinct about Advent. Because as we're peering into the lights and we're seeing the joy and we're singing the songs and the gifts and the presence of the family, what we need to remember is Advent's gonna actually call us to do something different. It's gonna invite us to look into the darkness, 
to take a good, long, brave stare into the darkness that is our life and the darkness that is our world, and with eyes of faith, see something that's not there yet. To hope beyond the appearance of hope. Isaiah 64 is a, a, a poem. I've heard it said before, poems are really the only ones that can truly tell the Advent story. And uh, we see that displayed for us today. <laughs> Isaiah 64 is not just a poem, but it's a poem known as a messianic expectation. And it really is the ideal passage for tuning our hearts and adjusting our minds to not simply what is, but to the promise of what is coming. And as we turn our minds and we turn our hearts to that promise of what is coming, to their experience joy. How do we experience that joy? Well, the first thing I want to note is this. Pray with fierceness. Pray with fierceness. If you look back at your year and you find yourself... Uh, yourself among the majority of people, Christians included. Uh, chances are you experienced more angst this year than you did joy. Chances are you experienced more angst than joy. We have a lot of angst in the world around us. We have a lot of angst in our lives. And unfortunately, we as humanity do this thing where we have now in the 21st century expressed that angst through outrage. A missiologist, uh, missiologist named Ed Stetzer put it this way, we find ourselves in outrage in a culture of outrage. There's outrage in here and we're surrounded by outrage. There's a lot of rage in politics. There's a lot of rage in uh, the workplace. There's a lot of rage online and on social media and Yelp, for goodness sakes. Outrage everywhere. Sometimes I'll get on my, uh, my next door app, which is supposed to be like your friendly interaction with your next door neighbors. And they're buried amongst the posts, you know, requesting a handyman and some picture of a lost chihuahua is the, is the outrage post. You've read it. Outrage about this neighbor, outrage about this person, outrage about this politician, about this city council member, about our mayor and our, us not being represented and, 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 and the, the decorations being left up beyond January and on and on and on, outrage after outrage after outrage. And I'm reading through the Nextdoor app and I'm convinced these people would murder a man if they could get away with it. Over sometimes extremely trivial things. Let's just put it simply, things escalate, uh, escalate quickly in the 21st century, don't they? That escalated quickly. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that Christians need to move from contributing to the age of outrage to effectively engaging it. Not contributing to it, but effectively engaging it. How do we effectively engage in a culture of outrage, an age of outrage? So it means that we first, we first need to engage our own angst and our own longings. We need, to, we need to engage the angst of our own souls. How do we do that? We do that through prayer. Look with me in verses one through two. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Chances are we don't use that word rend very often, if ever. But it's the same word that's used to describe when Jacob is told that his son Joseph has been killed. He takes his clothes and he rends them. He tears the fiber of his clothes in such a deep emotional response to the news that his son has died. 
There's this fierceness to this word. It's very interesting that Isaiah, the scriptures are leading us to pray with such fierceness. We are being guided to pray this. Oh God, would you tear apart the heavens and anything else, anything and everything that would separate us from your earth-shaking presence, tear it apart. Bring your power, bring your healing, bring your judgment and your justice into our world. Nothing shy of your fiery presence that boils water can break this evil cycle in our lives and in our world. Break this thing open. Step into this mess and set things right. Set things right. When was the last time you prayed like that? Honestly. Lord, um... Bless them. Thank, thank you for this food. Amen. When was the last time you prayed like that? So here's a question I have. I wonder what our, us as the Christian community, our discourse, our public discourse would look like if we prayed our angst like that. I have to imagine our overwhelm, our anxiety, our fear, all the things that, by the way, rob us of our joy. I have to imagine that angst and anxiety and fear would look significantly different if we prayed with such fierceness. This is true encouragement. This is instilling courage into your soul. Pray like this. Pray with this fierceness. God, break this thing open and come. Second thing is watch with openness. Watch with openness. See, the Advent season is really, as I mentioned, about staring into the darkness and with eyes of faith, watching and waiting for the appearing of God. We're peering into the, dis the distance, into the darkness, and we are eyes set on the appearance of God. But here's the question. What are we looking for? What are we looking for? What do we expect to see? Um, the first and last probably time I'll quote Al Pacino. He said this. He said, I asked God for a bike, but I know God doesn't work that way, so I stole the bike and asked for forgiveness. <laughs> kind of can't argue with that. <laughs> I know, I, I knew God doesn't work that way. So here's the question, how does God work? What, what, how does God work? How does God operate in the world? And how will we know when we see it? That's the million dollar question. How will we know when we see it? See, because one of the tragic points of the Advent story is that when God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, when the word took on flesh and blood and, and dwelt among us to reside among us, the theophany of theophanies, that by and large, the world missed it. John 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Question for us is, will we recognize him? Will we receive him? See, when it comes to looking for the evidence of God in our lives, we create, unfortunately, we create these very narrow categories. God does this, God does that, but he doesn't do that, and he would never do that, not at least in my life. I can't believe in a God like that. I see God here, I see God like this, but not here. Definitely not like that. And on and on and on. And the sooner than later, we have this very small window that we view God through. The dimensions of our 
view of God becomes smaller and smaller by those unreasonable expectations. And so we place those expectations on him. And what ends up happening is those expectations eclipse our little view of God. And what ends up happening is we miss God entirely. Blinded by our very expectations of what we should see when we see him. I would venture to say that for many of us, these wrong expectations of God are actually the root source of a lot of our disillusionment a lot of our disappointment with God and God's people, and maybe even some of our doubts. Why? Because this is what ends up happening. We are no longer shaped in the image of God. God is shaped in our image. He loves what we love. He hates what we hate. He does what we think he should do. He doesn't do what we don't think he should do. He does what we tell him. And then we are crushed when he doesn't jump when we say jump. The God that was created in our image just doesn't perform like we thought he should. Disillusionment, disappointment, maybe even doubt. Listen to the words of Isaiah, verse three. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. This is the most cliche thing I will say today. Isaiah is preparing us to expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. Things that we didn't look for. Awesome things that we were not anticipating. See, we generally aren't awestruck by what we expect. When we expect something to happen a certain way, and it happens, that's status quo. We flip the light switch on. It turns on. That's what light switches do. We turn on our car, And we got here this morning. That's what cars do. There's nothing awesome about that because we expected it. But it's that which is outside of or exceeds our expectation that we truly call awesome. When it goes beyond what we were expecting, when it goes beyond what we were looking for. And so the question that you've got to grapple with this morning is do you want to experience the awesomeness of God? Do you want to experience and see God at work in your life? Well, here's what's got to happen. You have to be willing to put aside your expectations. You have to be willing for God to work on his timetable, not yours. You got to be willing for God to work according to his will and not yours. You got to, appear, you got to be ready for God to appear where he wants, when he wants, with who he wants. Outside of our expectations, beyond our expectations, Our expectations of God are not too great. They're too small. They're too small. This is what Advent does for us. It expands that for us. In fact, it doesn't even expand it. Advent blows open our categories. It rends our categories. And even the Christmas story, for goodness sake, it reminds us that the beauty and the glory and the radiance of God himself would be found in a feeding trough. Do you think anyone was looking there? Do you think anyone was anticipating that one? And yet there's where the radiance of God appears, in a manger, in a trough. Watch with openness to experience that which you were not looking for, and experience joy. The third thing is this, wait in, or wait with faithfulness. Now, I, 
I can imagine you've heard things like this before. God helps those who helps them, help themselves. You've heard that one before? Or um, God meets us in the middle. He does his part. We do our part. Listen to how the scriptures describe God's interaction with us. Verse four. From of old, no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. No one has seen a God like you. Who? Who waits for the, or who helps those, who acts for those who wait for him. Who acts for those who wait for him. I love this picture that Isaiah is giving us here. That unrivaled God. There is no God like our God. And that unrivaled God is one who helps those who wait for him. Who wait for him. That's the Advent imperative. Wait. Wait upon the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Now, if we to be honest, sometimes waiting is one of the hardest things to do. And it's not because it asks much of us. It's not because we have to exert all this energy and resources for God. No, it's because we have to simply refuse to act apart from God. Waiting is difficult. It's hard because it means that we have to acknowledge our limitations in and of ourselves. Waiting is so difficult because it has to, we have to recognize that we lack uh, what is required to simply fix our situation. That we lack the resources to, to change our circumstances. That we lack what is required to heal any kind of brokenness in our lives and in the lives of people around us. It's hard because it means we're out of control. Waiting is the death blow to our pride. But it is the key to our Christian joy. In fact, we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that the Lord is good to those who wait for him. God is good to those who wait for him. We may be asking, well, what good is waiting? What good does waiting do in my life? Well, Isaiah tells us that God acts, or if you have the NIV translation, works for those who wait for him. The word actually can uh, um, be translated prepare. And so here's the idea. God is preparing something in and for us as we wait. Here's a beautiful, inclusive thing here. No matter where you are on the spectrum of faith, we are all waiting for something today. We're all looking around that corner, hoping something specific is coming. And you're at church, so you're probably praying for it. We're all waiting for God to do something. Maybe it's a prayer for a loved one. Maybe you have a loved one that has not yet believed on Jesus and you're praying for that individual. Maybe you have a loved one that has hit rock bottom and you're praying for their life to be turned around. Maybe you're waiting for that relationship. Maybe you're waiting for marriage. Maybe you're in a relationship where you're waiting for it to turn around and and to experience some sort of health. Maybe you're waiting for a child. Maybe you're waiting for a job. Maybe you're waiting for an opportunity or for healing or for freedom from some sort of struggle. We're all waiting for God to do something in our lives. And what Isaiah reminds us is this, is that God is working in your waiting. Jade Mazarin, she put it this way. Listen to these words. There's actually something happening while nothing is happening. God uses waiting to change us. That miserable, uncomfortable, sometimes painful state of silence is one of God's most powerful tools to set us free, if we're willing, that is. 
that silence, that waiting, that waiting for God to do something is actually the very place that God is doing something. The book of Romans would tell us suffering produces endurance. Endurance is producing character. Character is producing hope. God is preparing something in you. There's actually something happening when nothing's happening. So we may be asking, okay, what does that mean? That we just wait? We just wait? We just sit still and do nothing, let go and let God? Well, not exactly. Look with me in verse five. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. What Isaiah is telling us is that there is joy to be found in our waiting. What a thought. While we are waiting, there is joy to be experienced. But here it is, as we press on in faithfulness. The joy that we are all longing to experience. If you're human, you have a longing for joy. It's wired into you. And that experience that we are longing for is to be discovered on the path of righteousness. As we press on in faithfulness and expectation of our God. Fourth and finally, you guys still with me this morning? Okay. Repent and humbleness. Fourth and finally, repent and humbleness. I've shared this story before, but Christmas season is the time where you share your best stories, even if it's repeated. Back in the early 1900s, uh, G.K. Chesterton was asked by the Times to contribute to a piece, an ongoing piece, about uh, really answering the question, what is wrong with the world? And the question went out to economists, philanthropists, all sorts of people from all different spectrums to write back and contribute to the answering this question, what is wrong with the world? And they expected something witty yet thorough from Chesterton. But his response was sort of shocking because it was extremely brief, extremely brief, and yet really powerful. This was his response to the question, what is wrong with the world? He said, dear sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. To the question of what is wrong with the world, let's start here. Me. Me. See, Advent welcomes us to acknowledge the evil in this world without apology. This is why I love Advent. No one has to bury their head in the sand as to what is going on in the world and what is going on in our, in our lives and what is going on in the church. Like, we can get really painfully honest about the darkness and the brokenness of the human experience. Advent welcomes that. But it seems to me that we are not ready to talk about the evils of the world until we are willing to acknowledge the evil within. Until we're willing to acknowledge the sin and evil that resides in us. And to be honest, this may be the most painful challenge that Advent brings. Advent is challenging, it's preparation. It's not easy. And this may be the most difficult challenge because what it does is it asks us to confront the things that we would rather suppress for one more year. It calls us to confront those things that we would be totally content to press down and suppress into 2019. But it calls us to repent with humbleness. Why? Because as one author put it, those things that we cannot accept about ourselves, we project upon others. If I don't admit my shadow side, I will unconsciously find another who will carry my shadow for me. This is what he's saying. What we can't accept about ourselves, we project on other people. Those things that we hate most about us, we hate most about others. 
The things that we hate most in this world are probably a reflection of what is going on in our hearts, and it bugs us. What ends up happening is we forfeit the mercy that God's extending to us. This passage, I love the, the motion of this passage because it begins with acknowledging adversaries, the enemies of God's people, the nations that rage. And he's, he's, he is praying with fierceness. The request is that God would come down and make them tremble, that God would come flex his holy, mighty muscles. This is like a sickum prayer. God, sickum, go deal with the sinners of this world. Deal with them. But it's almost as if Isaiah has this realization about halfway through this poem. And here it is. Wait a minute. If God comes to judge the wicked, and God is angry about sin and evil in this world, then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the person that's praying that prayer? Look at me in verse 5. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned, and in our sins, we've been a long time. Shall we be saved? Wait, the coming of the Lord is not good news for sinners. It's terrifying. Rend the heavens. Make the earth tremble. God, you are angry. That is terrifying news for sinners. Potentially terrifying. Isaiah asked a really good question. How can we be saved? You need to ponder that. How can we be saved? How can we pray prayers like this? How can we be saved? The question is, do you think a perfect, righteous God is going to look at you and simply give you a pass because of some subjective measurement of holiness and righteousness that you established for yourself? That God's gonna look upon your life and say, all right, that's, that's good enough because you're somehow greater than some subjective majority of people, that you're not like so-and-so, you're not like so-and-so. Yeah, I got this, but I don't do this, and I do this, and I, I compensate in this area. You think God's just gonna give you a pass? Verse six, we've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All our righteousness is like a filthy rag. Here's what Isaiah is recognizing. Even our best selves are distorted. The best version of you is unclean. The best version of you is not sufficient. There is no hope in ourselves. And what we need to recognize is the darkness of this world will get even darker when we search within for the light we will find even more discouragement. We will find even more despair. And so the question again is, where is their hope? What, is, what hope is there? And the good news is that there is actually hope found in this passage, and there is hope found specifically for the one who turns to God in repentance and faith. Good news, friends. There is hope. This is a predicament. Like, this is the predicament the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ overcomes. Verses eight and nine. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. That is covenant language. No one calls God Father unless they're part of the family. 
We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Forgive our sins. Do not hold these sins against us. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Hope is not found in fixing ourselves for God. Hope is not found in us, in our own righteousness. Hope is found when we come to God for healing through Jesus Christ. And this is the hope of Advent. This is the story of Advent. Christ came incarnate into this world to save sinners like you and me. To save sinners like you and me, satisfying the just anger of God, a very real, just wrath, to break the power of sin, to fulfill his requirements for us, to give us his righteousness, so that we can be safe and secure in him, so that we can call upon God as Father. And the coming of the Lord is coming again is to eradicate sin once and for all. For those who are hidden in Christ, for those who are forgiven by his grace, today, we can cry out, come Jesus, come. We can, we can raise our eyes to the heaven. We can ask God, come down, rend the heavens and come down. And we can do it with zero trepidation. And we can do it without any hesitation. And we can do it without any fear of punishment because of the hope and the confidence and the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen? Because what I want to do is I want to end with a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then I'm just going to give, allow some time, like a moment of silence, and then it'll come up and we'll introduce our time of communion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, look up. You whose gaze is fixed on this earth, who are spellbound by the little events and changes on the face of the earth, look up to these words. You have turned away from heaven disappointed. Look up. You whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are crying over the fact that the earth has gracelessly torn us away. Look up. You who are burdened with guilt, who cannot lift your eyes. Look up. Your redemption is drawing near. Something different from what you see daily will happen. Just be aware. Be watchful. Wait just another short moment. Wait, and something quite new will break over you. God will come.